Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 152 with my guest, John Beck and Jason Truding. Uh, Jason was a student of, of Mr. Beck at the Eastman School of Music, and then he went on to go to Yale and then formed So Percussion. And I wanted to sit down with him and Mr. Beck and talk about the history of the Eastman Percussion um, Department uh, and sort of the development over the last 40 or 50 years and sort of pick his brain about it. And I'll have Jason there to sort of uh, get a little more in depth since he went to school there. Always a pleasure to talk with Jason, but also um, JB. We did a podcast one-on-one uh, last week, and I really enjoyed it. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. This is John Beck with uh, my good friend Jason Truding. All right, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Well, let's let's uh, gavel this to order. Um, JB, I appreciate you doing this. Um, we spoke a couple, two weeks ago maybe, uh, sort of about just you as a, right. as a percussionist and a person uh, – uh, you know, talked about your time growing up just during World War II and talking about um, the National Association of Rudimental Drummers and all that stuff. And, and I sort of was fascinated just by all the little nooks and crannies of your life and, and the things that sort of pinballed you along the way to, uh, to Eastman. And then also how that affected not only just the studies at Eastman, but um, the, the number of careers you've had an influence on, not just uh, through Jason, you know, Jason and I have talked in minivans for the last 15 years about your, his time at Eastman and the, and the differences between that and my time at Akron and Adams at Oberlin and Eric at, at, at Peabody. Um, so I just, I'm really grateful for you joining me back here with Jason because I, I kind of just want to sort of state an overall umbrella prompt here and then kind of try to let the two of you figure out the rest. Um, Eastman clearly for, 50 years you or so you were there, um, and it clearly has had a huge impact on the music world, everything from Steve Gadd, to, you know, and Paul Simon to um, So Percussion. And I'm curious um, how you see the development of Eastman's program in particular and how your role there changed over the course of your career. Um, so that's my big picture prompt. I don't have anything prepared past this, um, so I'll sort of turn it over to you and, and see where we want to go. Well, uh, it's a big question. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Eastman is about, and uh, the doors opened at Eastman in 1921. So it's going to be a hundred years old in in 2021. Uh, I was fortunate to uh, get there in 1951. And prior to that, uh, Eastman and the orchestra, the Rochester Philharmonic, was a small, uh, not one of your major orchestras, but it was an orchestra that George Eastman started for the city of Rochester because he wanted his uh, uh, people who live in the city of Rochester to enjoy music. Although he was not a musician, he did enjoy and knew the importance of music in their lives. So from from those days, 1921 through, I can only relate to what my teacher, William Street, told me uh, when he started teaching at the school. And in 1935, as I told you when you and I talked, uh, the first percussion graduate of Eastman was uh, Ollie Zinsmeister. And then he went into the United States Marine Band and he stayed 20 years. And in 1951, I took uh, his, or 1955, I took his place in the band and uh, went in for four years from 55 to 59. He came back to Eastman in 59, and I found a home. 
I found a home at Eastman. Uh, Gordon Peters was here that time. Uh, and uh, my first graduating class at Eastman in 1968, I taught in the preparatory department from 59 to 1968. And then my first class was Steve Gadd, Bill Kahn, and Ruth Kahn. That's not fair that that got to be your first class. I'm sorry. We've, Jason and I have taught at universities now a little bit, and it's just not fair that that was your first class. So I'm just going to call that out right now. <laughs> you know, you guys, for, for a teacher to surround themselves with talent, it certainly makes the job of teaching easy. For instance, I'm looking right now at Jason Harriet. I remember well Jason's days. And Jason, I could tell, one of the things that I, as a teacher, would always do when I first get to know my students is I wanted to know their strengths and their weaknesses and also where their head is, where they think they're going to be. I knew you were not going to be an orchestra percussionist. <laughs> How could you tell? I, I could tell by the way you were thinking, uh, the way you were playing, and the things that you played on your recitals, and the things you were involved in. And when I see that happening, the worst thing I could do would be to squelch it and say, no, you have to be an orchestral percussionist. I, I was never like that. I always like to let the students do what they want to do then I get to know them better. They get to know themselves better and improvement is much quicker. So that's how I felt about uh, your days. I was looking up in, in a book, uh, the book I wrote uh, called Percussion Matters. And in your class, in, in your, your class was uh, uh, Peyton McDonald. Or, well, he was, yeah, he he was, was a grad, grad student. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, Blake Tyson, Lawson White, and guys like that. Uh, you were surrounded by a lot of great thinkers, and I enjoyed it. For me, it was always a pleasure because – so I knew you could play all the excerpts. That's not that big a deal. But uh, I did. I knew that was not where you were going, and I let you go where you were going, and you were going to great – heights in you and so percussion and all you guys and i really feel sorry for you now that in the world that we're living in where as as a freelancer or you you are connected with the college and so on and you have that background but now even colleges my my own only a connection i have with eastman right now is my history of percussion class and they just canceled that because it's not one of the major parts of the curriculum. And I understand that. So I am now officially retired. I don't have any emeritus <laughs> job. You'll uh, be maybe back. It'll come, well, it, it could come back, yes. Well, I was so, curious about that. I mean, I one thing I, I feel like when, when the four of us teach – we have we have such different undergrad experiences and the same graduate school experience. That's something about about so right. We all we all went to Yale and all studied with the same graduate teacher, but all had our own unique undergrad experiences. Um, and it's it's interesting. We, I feel like we think about music so similarly in a lot of ways, but where I can tell a lot of our differences is what our undergraduate experiences were like. And I realized that you know 
I've been curious how conscious your approach was because I feel like a lot of a lot of different a lot of people go a lot of different directions out of Eastman. I don't feel like the program is known for one just one thing, right? Like I feel like um, you know you'll find folks coming out of Eastman and playing in an orchestra, or you'll find folks who are drum set players, or you'll find folks who found weird contemporary music like like myself. You know that uh, different paths. Um, and I, w- I was curious how how conscious that was of the way you taught or how much it was just kind of instinctual for you or just early on did you think I mean I guess when if you had Bill Kahn, Steve Gadd and Ruth Kahn in the first class you know maybe you know that's that's starting uh that's starting a certain path because there I'm sure there's similarities between those folks but Steve Gadd and Bill Kahn also have their own uniquenesses you know oh yeah well uh, well Steve uh, his background was pretty much rudimental he played in a drum corps and uh, and so on. Bill Kahn came from the Philadelphia area, and uh, his influence was the, the Philadelphia Orchestra and those people that, that were there, Hinger and so on. And then um, Ruth was from somewhere around uh, Pittsburgh, w- Wilkinsburg, I think, something like that. And I knew a little bit about her background because I studied in Pittsburgh also. So each of them had different backgrounds, and they studied with uh, Bill Street, my teacher, for a couple of years, and then when I took over, they happened to be in my class. So that was kind of neat for me. I just just jumped right in, hmm. got on the saddle, took a hold of the reins, and said, okay, guys, take me where you want me to go. <laughs> and, and that was fun for me to to watch them grow. And, you know, Bill Kahn is uh, still in, in Rochester, and he and I still uh, communicate quite a bit. And he, like the rest, like everyone in the world right now, we are all confined to our homes, and we don't get out much anymore with social distancing, which is necessary. And that's, that's why I feel sorry for you guys at this point, because your main function is not playing in a big symphony orchestra, but you have to go out and communicate with people. And when you can't do that, that puts a real burden on you all. But I've seen some of your things that you're doing now through the internet and so on, and I really admire you for what you're doing. My ability is the internet is pretty juvenile. I really don't know much about it. But too, I, really. <laughs> I can turn it on and I I can talk about it. So We're zooming know. right now, JB. It's working. Yeah, but that's true. <laughs> yeah. So when because to me, I feel like so many, so many students who I still keep in touch with now, who I was in school with, who or who are, you know, Eastman alumni, I feel like some at some moment after the fact, we all have these these moments where we think of some little thing that you said that didn't that has this crazy impact 10 years later, like these little nuggets that were planted that kind of like land, um, you know, many years later. And I think everybody in some way will refer to you in, in, in some style of kind of a, a Zen master teacher, like in a, in a, um, maybe, you know, in the moment, maybe you don't always know what is being, you know, what, how heavy some piece of advice is. And then later it's like um, a little, you know, kind of goes off. And, and for me, the idea that, um, to me as a teacher, it takes a lot of confidence. What I'm learning now about myself as a teacher is that it takes a lot of confidence 
that early in somebody's studies, I, I remember the blue book you had, you know, so I remember freshman year was like um, everybody went through the blue book, right? It was the blue book and the Bona um, sight reading and the t- like there were, there were certain things that kind of everybody did that first year. And then people were able to kind of um, find their own paths more and more. And that's something that we've taken in our teaching with undergrads as well. Um, but I guess I'm still kind of just curious how that method, how you came up with that method and how, how conscious were you to let everybody go their own way? Or, or did you discover that through, like, did you know that year one or did you discover that year 30? Well, I, it, it, I probably learned how, that what you're talking about. And what you just said was my way of thinking that it's a matter of letting each person do what they want. I think self-instruction is so important. And once the person knows what they can do, if they play something and it feels good, try to recapture that feeling because that's where you are. It's not what I said. Now it has to, you have to do this or that. I never believed in cloning because it squelches the person. You are not only a percussionist, but you're a human being. And when someone comes along and says, hey, no, don't, don't do that. Do it my way. Then you're not a human being anymore. You're, you're, I'm trying to make you like me, and I don't, I don't want any more around like me. I'm enough. Just <laughs> let, me do, let me do what I do. And I think a lot of it was because of my early instruction where my first teacher was a painter, a house painter. I had to learn a lot. She gave me 13 lessons and said, I don't know anymore. And then I went to someone else, someone else, someone else. Mm-hmm. Finally, I ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I would get on a bus 225 miles away in my hometown of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I'd stay at the YMCA. I'd go to the arts drum shop and study with Art Harbor. And for a week, I'd talk to the drummers. I'd learn how to prepare drums. I'd learn the business of music. And I think and, and there was a lot of self-instruction in my background. So when I did get to Eastman, I just continued on with what worked for me. And I would, I didn't want to compete with you guys because I knew you'd leave me in the woods somewhere if I tried to. Uh, <laughs> let me let me vouch uh, for you there, JB. Do. Jason would definitely leave you in the woods somewhere. <laughs> I played with him for 15 years. I've been left I'm in the woods. I'm not leaving anybody in the woods. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Well, I'm, I'm curious, JB. I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to keep coming back to uh, to what Jason's asking, but for me, I, you know, when I think of my teacher Larry Snyder, um, uh, I'm just going to assume that you're a person who's made mistakes like Jason and I do when we teach. And I'm curious for you, like, and I can think of a few along the line. There was a student at Soci probably eight years ago. We were coaching Zanakis, and I thought I knew what I needed to say to get this person motivated, and I said something with my intent of like, let's do it, and it turned out to sort of break her in that moment in a way that I was like, Oh no, what did I do wrong? I mean, it wasn't a, like uh, I did, it was just a, like, I misread the room in the situation in that moment. And it took me another week and a half. I mean, Jason knows what I'm talking about. I'm not going to say their names, but it took me a week and a half to be of a lot of like me wandering around by myself going like, what did I do wrong? How do I fix this? How do I fix this? Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, and then a week and a half later, she played Zanakis absolutely hit it out of the park and we, she's been sending me Christmas cards ever since, you know, like from Australia. <laughs> and I, I don't think I fixed anything. I don't know that, I, but I, I don't think I fixed that particular problem, but I definitely learned something about myself 
in that moment. I'm curious for you, is there any specific moment, and maybe just keep it on your teaching with Jason, maybe, like, is there anything where you said something where you thought you were correct and realized, okay, that didn't work. I need to, I need to retool this. Is there any specific thing for you as a teacher that, that pops into your head of like, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I didn't sleep well that night. <laughs> well, there have been a lot of those moments because I learned as much from you guys, from the students, as I learned from my teacher. Because it's a win-win situation. Teaching, is, is it depends on how you approach it. But if you approach teaching where I'm going to tell you what I do, you show me what you can do, and then between the two of us, we're going to come up with something great. That's I think, is the way it works. There are so many different ways of doing the same thing musically, just as there are so many different ways of saying the same thing. One person may say it one way, someone says it another, but the meaning is the same. So without my students, I wouldn't be here talking to you today because your students have given me a wonderful career and life. And I've, in turn, hoped that I would give them some kind of information that would then help them do the same thing and achieve the same thing that, that I have. Fortunately, I was at the Eastern School where I've been for 49 years, and now there have been uh, probably uh, almost 60 years, I guess, I've been there. Um, and it's, it, it's a, I, as I said, I found a home. I, I found a home. I thought about going other places, but why? Because mm. I liked what I was doing here, and I liked playing in the orchestra, and I liked teaching. And that was always my theory of life. I wanted to play, and I wanted to teach, and I also wanted to incorporate jazz. Because I love to play jazz and drum set. And at Eastman, I could play symphonic music, I could teach great students, and I could play jazz on weekends and also at, at the school. There was lots of things. So what I wanted to do in life, I was able to achieve at Eastman. And my students helped me achieve it. So thanks, students, for all you've done for <laughs> you, me. You're, you mentioned jazz, and um, you, know, you showed me a program the last time we spoke where it was like musical sensation Johnny Beck. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I mean, one of the other things you brought up the last time we spoke, and just to sort of speak to sort of the development of our field, um, you mentioned in 1953, the marimba ensemble, and then in 1960, starting a percussion ensemble. And I'm curious for you, like Jason has been asking, like, was it a conscious choice? Were you like, oh, I'm going to do this thing in the hopes that 40 years from now, we have you know, these other things. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the development and the thought or thought processes around starting, you know, being in the Marim Ensemble and starting a percussion ensemble and sort of what that original sort of origin story was like for our field? Well, when I was a student, I was the only percussion student in my class in 1951. There were five of us at the school. We were taught by our teacher how to make good sounds, play the orchestral excerpts, and perform in a symphony orchestra. That was the main thing, playing in the band. And it it was kind of boring sometimes because once you do all those things, we needed some kind of an outlet where we could play together. 
like you guys in soul percussion. So that's that's important. And so Gordon Peters, as I mentioned before, was here at, at the time I was a student, and he had the Musser influence. And he kind of pushed this idea to all of us. We started the Marimba Masters my last year at, at Eastman, I think it was 54. And we got together, we practiced, and it turned into something pretty good. But there was no percussion ensemble. And when I, in, in my time in the Marine Band from 55 to 59, Gordon was still here working at Eastman uh, on his advanced degrees. And he kept pushing percussion ensemble, percussion ensemble. And then when I came back in 59, Gordon went to Chicago and I came to Eastman, um, I just kept the idea going. And by 19, it took me two years to convince the school that we could be a viable ensemble at the Eastman School. We meaning the percussion ensemble like quintets, quartets, and so on. And that we should be given credit for this. So in, I think it was 1962, we started getting credit for playing and in percussion ensemble. And we also went to the composition department and say, look, guys, start writing for us. And we gave little lectures, many lectures to them about the, what percussion can do, the range and so on. So it was just a natural evolution from the ideas that were running around in our heads in the 50s and into the 60s, and now it's become a, a very viable part of the curriculum at the Eastman School. So we, we all had this idea. It, it gave us something to do. And the marimba ensemble, the percussion ensemble, became a, a type of ensemble where we all got together. It was social as well as musical like you guys do. When you get together, you just don't go in and play. You talk to each other, and you have fun doing it. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking, actually, the, the first piece of percussion ensemble music I played was, didn't Gordon Peters write this, The the Swords of Modeling? Yes, he did. When I was in high school, I played that piece. I I, I studied with Vera Dalen. I don't know if you remember the the Musser influence. Yeah. You know, I said with Vera I do, Dalen. I, so, I, I do remember her. Yes. Yeah, and so um, she had. You know, I was in high school wanting to start a percussion ensemble because I was bored in the back of the band, not not knowing what to do. Um, and we would be allowed to go off every once in a while and, and rehearse something. And I remember that was that was the piece we got to do. Um, have you been or? You too, Josh. Have either either of you guys been been reading, um, or you may have read this before, JB? Bill Kahn's been writing some really, um, or been maybe posting some really awesome writings about the beginnings of Nexus, mm. um, and I think so much about how many of those folks, not not all of them went through your your program, but a, a few. Yeah, is it just? Uh, I mean, well, Bill, Bob, Bob Becker, yeah, for and sure. Bill Kahn, yeah, were both in my mm. class. Yeah, and they talk about the first the first shows that happened were in Kilburn Hall. Sometimes they yes. were duo shows, you know, before they were the whole. But it was all in the early '70s moment. And and Bill's been writing about this, which has been amazing. I haven't um, seen that. But what? Yeah, it's really really cool. Um, what do you do? You remember anything about those those moments? I mean, it sounds like it was a uh, some of the early shows were kind of Im improvised shows in Kilburn Hall. 
we were first uh, someone who you may know was like Warren Benson. Remember sure, yeah. Warren Benson? He was teaching composition here, and he also had a lot of influence on the beginning of Nexus. And I do remember the first concert they played when they all just went out on the stage, no music stands, just instruments, and they played their concert. I yeah. do remember the beginning of that, and Warren was uh, behind of that. So he encouraged them to do it. And I think improvisation has always been a, a big staple of their repertoire. But one nice thing about the Nexus is that they can play so many different styles of, yeah. of music, and they from rudimental drumming right through. And I think that's one of the reasons they became. Uh, quite successful. I remember the, you know, really early days of so. We went on what what almost feels like a little bit of a, a you know mecca to meet Nexus, and we we drove up to Eastman, and I actually remember we played um, we played outside of Java's, like we played we got it we got a show at Java's, but it was a summer it was summertime, so they, we played outside, and I remember because um, Doug Perkins was playing then, and we we were playing. Um, the Zanakis piece on Jimbe's Oko, which me and Josh have, have had a good giggle about many a time because I'm not sure we were playing that piece very well on the Jimbe's. But uh, the crowd was right up all around us. And I remember, I think Doug had a glass of red wine that just got poured all over the music. So for every show we played after that, there was just a big red wine splotch on the music. Um, but I remember we got to meet Bill Kahn then and, and play some music for him um, in, one, in Room 102. Um, and then we got to go up to Toronto to meet the rest of the, the guys. And actually, I remember Robin Engelman telling the story um, of Warren Benson and, and kind of his um, connection there. Because did, did Warren teach at Eastman and maybe also in Ithaca? Or was there an Ithaca connection to Warren Benson somehow, maybe? Um, yeah, well, yes. He, he was a timpanist in Detroit for a oh, while. Okay. He played oh, wow. And then he went to Ithaca and then he went to, uh, to Eastman. He taught percussion and if, if it could maybe composition also, but at uh, at Eastman, he was the uh, in, in the composition department. Right. Okay. Because yeah, I do when you talk about all the different styles that Nexus plays, I remember first meeting all of these these the the guys in Nexus and and asking them each like a, a for a memorable moment, and you know. Of all the the moments that I would imagine they would say, I don't know, playing, you know, they were because they had played that the the Takamitsu Concerto so many places, you know, or, um, you know, like uh, their work with Steve Reich or their work with John Cage or the anything. Um, Robin Engelman said, uh, closing a long roll um, with the, I think it was with the Hellcats. Is that the um, the three camps? The are the Hellcats, are they the, the drummers at... Um, West Point, I think, right? West Point, yeah, yeah. He said yeah. something about closing closing a long roll with, and he was playing with a big rudimental band. And I thought that was just awesome. Cause I, I don't think I knew him or that part of Nexus that well, how deep they were into rudimental drumming. And the idea of, of you know, working with Seiji Ozawa or, where, you know, like of all the things that I was expecting he could have said, it was just like that that idea of... With everybody was like his most memorable experience. <laughs> I love that so much, you know. Yeah. You know, one, one of the nice things about uh, my, my career at Eastman, you mentioned Robin, who was the principal percussion of the Rochester Philharmonic for a while, and oh, Bill Kahn and Ruth Kahn. 
my whole career from 1959 to 2002, when I played in the Rochester Philharmonic, was every rehearsal, every concert, I was playing with my students. The percussion oh, wow. section was always students of mine. And that was a double-edged sword. That meant, hey, JB, don't screw up because they're going to know it. <laughs> and, but also, it gave me a chance to watch them play and react. And I, I don't know if there's ever been, been another percussionist who could say, I've played my whole career with just my students. But, but I have, and, and that was really a, a plus for me. When I think about it, I really am happy. Well, I remember we when, I think it, is it possible that Bill Kahn retired somewhere? In, so I was at Eastman 1995 to 1999. Is it possible that it was, he retired from being principal somewhere in there? And is that possible? Because well, yeah. I remember we all snuck into the Eastman Theater. We all snuck into the balcony to watch the, the principal percussion audition. Um, and I think we were all up there. And I don't think anybody knew we were up there. But maybe everybody knew we were up there. They do, they do now. <laughs> I don't know. Jim Tiller, is it, did he win that job? Or I, like, I remember the finals. There were a few folks. Um, and I think it was when Bill Kahn retired. Um, yeah, but well, Bill told me one day at rehearsal, he said, uh, JB, I'm, I'm going to get out of the orchestra. I'm, I'm going to retire from playing because Nexus is becoming so busy that I just can't keep the two going. He used to finish a concert in Rochester on a Thursday evening, like 10 o'clock, drive to Toronto so that he could be ready the next morning to do a rehearsal with Nexus oh, and wow. then drive back so he could be back for the next Lomani concert. And it just oh, wow. became too much for him to do that. So he decided to, to get out. And, but um, it, 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 one thing about watching these guys play in the section, watching them play musically was great. But watching them, their personalities adjust to the lifestyle of an orchestral musician. There is sort of a life, uh, it's, I think they call it orchestral mentality, where you have to get along with the conductor, whether you believe it or not. And one of the priceless things that Bill said, I'll never forget this in rehearsal, <laughs> we were playing some kind of a modern piece, and Bill was playing snare drum. And so the conductor stopped. Bill had missed the part. And the conductor was stopped. He said, snare drum. And before the con anyone could say anything, Bill said, oh, would you like me to play that louder? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that, I, He's been practicing I guess, that line for years in front of a mirror, and he finally got to use it. <laughs> yes. And, and there, we had a, a, a conductor from, uh, from um, Hungary, I guess, I guess it was, the name Laszlo Shomaji, and he said to Robert Engelman one day, he spoke, his English was not the greatest, but he said to Robin, I want that symbol to shine. He was, Robin was playing a suspended symbol, and he says, I want it to shine. And Robin said to me, hey, JB, what's he mean? I said, I think he wants you to take it home and clean it up. <laughs> 
It's uh, I, 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 you know, you mentioned you mentioned playing with your students, JB, and I, I, um, and it's something when I think about the times in my life as a student where um, I know this is going to come out weird, but I when I when I when I play with Larry Snyder, I play with Bob Van Sice, um You're immediately aware that they're humans because they do make mistakes. Like you can't not make a mistake in front of your students. I, you know, when we do it in master classes, like Jason, Jason does it a lot more than the rest of us. Like he'll be like, screw it. Give me this. No, no. Yeah. Well, yes. But um, like in master classes, he'll be like, whatever, give me the sticks. What's the music. I'll just read it for you. I don't care what you think of me. And he'll get in and just go for it. And I think there's this weird, it like disarms the students to be like, Oh, he's not like a genius, perfect guy. Like he's me. He's just been, he's better at making mistakes than me. That's what's clear. And, um, I just don't want to gloss over this idea that playing with your students is like, should be this thing that is only good for you. Like it is good for the students too, to have that experience, to be disarmed and be aware. Um, I don't have any question regarding that, but I just want to highlight as a teacher, I think that's something I've learned. Like it's, it's a big teaching tool to show them that you don't know everything and that you're going to get in there and just go for it. Um, you know, I think about my, the things I, uh, my teacher, one of the things that are just sort of the weird intricacies of how the, the, the ecosystem of a studio is also its own thing. Like the weird little family organisms, the way everybody sort of trolls each other and picks on each other and lifts each other up and helps and critiques and doesn't like all of that stuff happens. And Larry, Larry, um, this is more of a question for Jason here, but I, I had a moment where I felt ethically responsible to tell Larry about something that was happening in the, in the ecosystem of the studio that was simple but I needed to tell him. And because he remarked to me years after I graduated, he's like, you know, one of the things I've just always been excited about is my students can sing A440. And that just feels really great. I said, that's, wow, that's crazy. I need to tell you something. The lights in the timpani room are a B flat. So we've all just learned how to sing a half step lower than a B flat. We don't, <laughs> I don't know A440, Larry. And he looked at me like, and so now when he teaches Tiffany lessons, he's like, turn off the lights and sing A440. And, <laughs> and, and so like, I'm saying that because there were 25 years of his teaching prior to me telling him that where, you know, without just being aware, like we figured out how to hack the system. And I'm, I'm sort of curious for Jason here, like, <laughs> are you willing to divulge any sort of life hacks of your time? <laughs> you told me a story oh, no. about you pushing a bunch of gear across the street and oh, J- yeah, yeah. JB well, seeing no, you no. and you being like, oh, yeah. uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm curious if you have anything like that, Jay. Well, I'll say I'm not sure of any, of any hacks. I'm sure JB knew all, all the stuff I was doing wrong and caught me most of the time. I, I, I really liked to play shows when I was at Eastman, JB. And so I know I was moving gear everywhere. I'm not sure you did know. So we would play at my senior year. I know we would play at Java Joe's every Friday night. And I know you would, you would always be coming out of the Philharmonic on the Friday night. And me Lawson played in that same group. It was me and Lawson and, and three other guys were, and I remember we really liked the way that, that Roger's bass drum sounded from room 514. So I know once you were in the Philharmonic, we would always kind of sneak it into Java Joe's and put a blanket over it. <laughs> so that we, you would always be so nice to wave at us. <laughs> and we would make sure there was a blanket over the, the Roger's bass drum. But I think we it, it, it's was always in good shape. I don't think we, we, we heard it. I think I probably heard other things. I remember, can I, I don't know if you would remember this. Well, maybe it was scarring enough that you would. I remember, because I, I was in the jazz program as well. And so there was moments where I wanted to play marimba 
in the jazz room on the sixth floor, but there was no way to get a marimba there. And so I remember we discovered if you put a, a four and a third marimba on its side, it would fit right in the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one time on the sixth floor, the, the elevator door opened and you were, <laughs> you were standing right there and me and Lawson had it on its side. Of course it was you and Lawson. <laughs> yes. Like that makes total yeah. sense. It wasn't Peyton. Was that, Peyton, oh, Peyton respects marimbas way too that, much to yeah. do that. Yeah, that, the, that was the Brentwood marimba that it you was. used to do that too. I yes. think it I was. Remember, yeah. yeah, I remember that. But that Brentwood, I think, is long gone. I don't yeah, know where I, it is I, anymore. I imagine. But <laughs> and and you know those carts that um, little uh, trap tables. Oh yeah, with the, with the carpet on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I I remember someone used that as sort of a like a sleigh or going down the hill. They get it going, and they jump on it. Well, one time I think the wheels came off and it crashed and burned. And uh, uh, I all those things I did learn about, but hey, that's part of life. And there's a, it, it. You probably never saw this, but. Back in the, um, I think it was its early, mid seventies, uh, there was there was a, a movie made by the students. That, oh, that, I've heard about. I don't think I've seen this. You've movie. heard about it? Okay, yeah, I've heard about it. Yep. Oh, well, Did Michael Byrne have something to do with it, or was this? Uh, no, it this wasn't was 70, Mike. So this is pre. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. The, no, I, I, I may be complaining because I've also heard to Michael Burrett stories. Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Mike was, yeah, he was, everyone had a sense of humor and a, a human side. That's what I liked about teaching, to get to know you guys. And um, so the, the Brentwood and all the things that would happen, I would learn about, hey, no one got hurt. It's a sense of humor. Everyone's smiling, and that's important. So it didn't bother me that much. I'm. Uh, oh, that's pretty good. One thing I remember, um, you know, just to sort of um, come around the home stretch here. Um, I, I remember you at your retirement party. I think uh, you know. Again, Jason, I've been in so uh, probably at this point for seven or eight years. I don't know how long ago you did this. This. Uh, this. They had that party at Pasic for you, where you gave a little speech. Um, I didn't really know you. I knew of you. And Jason had talked to me about you and said, hey, let's go check this out. JB is going to talk. And I was like, okay, sure. And Steve Gadd was in the room. Like all of the, all of your whole studio, if they were alive and in Indianapolis, were in that room. And you, you said some nice things and you were like, you know, one of the things that people have said about me is I'm not always the most inspirational teacher. And you were like – and you kind of looked right at Steve Gadd and you were like, I just – wanted you to know that you weren't always that inspirational either. <laughs> and I thought like that is kind of like the perfect button to like, it's a way to say like, you know, I love you, but it, this is a two way street and you didn't always kill me either. And I, I'm just like, you know, I think about that. Like when I'm in a room and I'm trying to figure out how to make that, that moment in a room with a student feel exciting. I think of what you said. I'm just like, Oh my God, I feel like I am digging. Like I'm, I'm digging a ditch right now. This is physical labor to get you to be excited. And, you know, yeah. so I'm just curious. I'm just curious just how, how that thought in your head, like for you as a teacher has morphed over time Just sort of, how do you reminisce now looking back on your time, um, looking at all your students, look at the impact you've had, um, looking at the, the variety, like music history has changed because of you pushing your students in different directions. And I'm just kind of curious for some final reflections, looking back, 
on your time here. Um, again, that's my prompt. I don't have a bit a, a more clear question. I'm just kind of curious for some final reflections here, and and from you as well, Jay. Well, wait, uh, Josh, say that again. I'm not sure I caught the the meaning of that whole thing. Oh, sorry. Just what would you like me to talk? Just um, when you said that statement, I feel like it was a really just honest sort of like I love you all, and let's like let's just acknowledge that this is. It's not the simplest thing to be a teacher. It's not the simplest thing to be a student either. It's a it's a it's a struggle, and you right. do it every day. You just have to do it every day for fifty years, and even then, you won't figure it out completely. Right. I, I think it's wrong for a student to come to a lesson and force the force the teacher to give them something that's going to be monumental at that moment. Mm. It's important that the student come to the lesson and maybe give the teacher something that's monumental to that moment. I mean, I think it's wrong for the student to think that they must be inspired by the teacher at every lesson because the teacher, it may not always be inspired by what the student has brought. So between the two, maybe some little sneak but you mentioned earlier in this talk about uh, maybe 20 years from the time you were a student, something that was said when you clicked 20 years rehearsal, you could be in. Oh, I remember my teacher said something like that. And I think that's the kind of way you have to approach learning. Learning is not something that's going to be handed to you in a a spoon and say, here, drink this and you're going to be moral. No, you have to work for it. You have to practice. And you have to take all of these ideas that you get from the teacher, from your colleagues, your peers, and from just walking through the Eastman School or any music school and listening what's coming out of these practice rooms. All of this goes into your head. And then a group like the you Soul Percussion or Nexus and so on, you have all of this going baggage going around in your head and you can then improvise. I think improvisation is something that is important to do. It's something percussionists do well because I guess in the early days, 90% of what they did behind the drum set was improvisation. They didn't really study the drum set. They just listen. You have to listen. And you have to make good sounds. The sounds have to be pleasing, and the player has to be relaxed and comfortable and sell this product that they're now giving to the listener. When you sell your product with all of the good quality that we just mentioned, then you're going to be successful. Jason, you have any? I just keep thinking of like you're the Phil Jackson of uh, percussion teachers, JB. Like it's just like you just Jay Jay has always called you the the Zen master, and I feel like it's it like it seems like a big picture sort of hands off approach, but it's a long game approach, I think. And it's I just want to sort of highlight that. And Jason, you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, no, I agree. You said earlier, JB. You said um, you know I've learned as much from my students as they've learned from me, and I remember like if we were having this this conversation, even. 10 years ago or 15 years ago, definitely when I was a student, 
I always thought that was kind of a platitude that I didn't understand. Like, oh yeah, sure, you know. And I remember the the first time we taught our soci our so percussion summer institute. I remember emailing all of the students afterwards and saying, I used to hear teachers say this, and I didn't understand what they were saying when they say, "I've learned as much from you as you've learned from me." Kind of idea. And I remember emailing all the students and saying that that like this is the first time I've really experienced that where. I am energized. I am thinking differently because of what the students brought to the conversation, um, and I feel like so many of these things. It's like a um, some kind of circle of life idea, where it's like you know now I'm looking at students who aren't going to understand all these things because they can't because they're 19 years old or 20 and they have to grow into they have to learn these things through experience, you know. And I feel like something about your teaching method just. Um, you just accept that fact early on that like, why am I going to wrestle with this? I'm, l let me give them space to, let me give a student space to learn something for themselves. And that's going to be the way that it really lasts. Um, so I, I feel like, um, I mean, I feel like I knew that at some points when I was studying and then I feel like each year I learn a little bit more. And now that I'm teaching more, I start to really understand um, and it, it will uh, continue. It will continue. Jason. You're going <laughs> to learn the more and more, you know, Long, you probably don't remember this, but somewhere you guys were playing soul percussion and uh, Lawson was in it, and you let me play it with you in the concert, Pieces yeah. of Wood. Yeah, it remember was at that a, moment? Was at Blake, yeah, it was at Blake Tyson. It was in Arkansas. Right. Yes. I, I do, because you signed our block. The, for yeah. me, that was one of the biggest thrills I've had in my whole career. It, it just you guys allowed me to play that little <laughs> you know. yeah and and so and then <coughs> and, and then like 60 years or 50 years later I got to play with Nexus I saw Nexus start I knew all the guys some were former students but they never let me play in the group and but one time they did and I played with them now several times. And it's always a ball. It's always memorable. Really is. Well, um, JB, I, 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 and Jay, I really, um, I don't know, in, in the world right now, I feel like um, I'm more and more aware uh, and thankful for conversations in my life. Person, like I'm just being selfish right now. Um, I learn more about myself and other people just by sitting and talking and not necessarily having a, a particular set of, like an agenda with questions lined up that we need to bounce through. Um <laughs> And that's selfish, but but I just want to say thanks. Um, I think my students, my personal students, but Jason's as well, and then our collective students at SOCI, um, I appreciate you being on the record with just sort of your story. Um, I think it will influence more people than I'm even aware of or that I think or hope will be influenced. Um, uh, so finally, just thank you. I appreciate it very much. And Jason, thank you for your time. And um, I hope we can do this uh, again sooner than later, even if we don't have to... Um, put it out for the world. This is, this sort of thing is really, really fun for me. personally. Yes. So thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure for me. It's like going, you know, if you guys don't fully Jason and Josh, you'll all understand as you get a little older, how important these moments of your teaching and playing are for you in the future. All right. Now I'm 87 years old and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now. I just put, I'm, I'm just, putting together a lot of boxes that have been sitting around in a warehouse, finding out all of this history. I think I even found some 
letters about you, Jason. I'm not sure what they are, but Uh-oh. I found I found your recitals. I and anyway, thanks oh, cool. guys. Thanks for allowing me to be part of your experience. Thanks, JB. This was really really fun. You, you, we should do it more often. Yes, you're you're quite welcome, JB. Stay safe, uh, stay healthy, and be in touch if you ever need anything. Okay. Okay. All right. Look thank forward you. Forward to talking to you guys again. All right. Take Bye. it easy. See ya. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M dot com. Uh, hilarious videos, um, all about accessory percussion and teaching and whatnot. Uh, cool merch, too, so check them out, liquiddrum.com. And also, all of the steel pans I play and teach on were built and tuned by Kyle Dunleavy. You can check out his instruments, uh, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Okay, uh, enjoyed this conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as well. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, stay safe, and uh, be well. Take care. Bye.